All right, everybody, thanks for being here. I want to respect your time. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in so that we can get you guys out of here in time. I'm doing my favorite thing of talking in front of people again. So thanks for bearing with me in there and now coming back at it for dose number two. So I'm going to try to make this not too awful, all right? But welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to um, talk about side-by-side side tonight. We're going to try to help you build a framework that you can use to provide biblical care and counsel as you aim to lovingly walk side by side with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what you signed up for in the description. So if you're in the wrong place or if you now are realizing I'm the one giving it and you want to just back right out, Joe, I see you. You're getting ready to go. I appreciate it. Uh, You can go ahead and do that. But I'm Adam Congdon. For the sake of the recording, I'll go ahead and introduce myself, even though you guys just had to uh, hear me talk for too long. Um, and I want to I want to start our time together tonight just by asking you a question. Uh, what do you think of when you hear the word counseling? Go ahead, take a moment, see what comes to your mind. What did you say, Allah? Got it. Okay, everybody got your answer in your head. Okay, well, most people when they they think of formal talk therapy, it's an expert talking to somebody on a couch and helping them see life differently. But in reality, we are all counselors. Practically every meaningful conversation that we have is counseling. And our culture is also full of counselors. Marketers are counselors. Journalists and reporters are counselors. Politicians, activists, authors, screenwriters, they're all counselors. And the list goes on and on. Around every corner, everyone we come into contact with seems to be trying to convince us how to view ourselves and how to view others. And those views, they affect the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat others, how we spend our time and our money, how we view our problems, and how we approach solving them. But the question is, is the counseling we're exposing ourselves to and sharing with others biblical? Or is it just the latest fad that seems to make the most sense? Or maybe something that seems to be working for everybody else? We want the counseling that's offered at Northridge to be biblical. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what is biblical counseling? And in its simplest form, biblical counseling is discipleship and biblical friendship. It's helping each other live out Ephesians 3, 14 through 5, 2, better each day. And if you're not familiar with that passage, read that this week. And when you do, pray that God will give you a passion for that vision of his church. It's walking side by side with our brothers and sisters in Christ and pointing each other toward Christ in the midst of our challenging circumstances. It's believing and living out 2 Peter 1.3 that tells us that in scripture, as God speaks to us, we have everything we need to live a godly life. And when I say that, I'm not claiming that the Bible is an encyclopedia of specific applications to each and every type of problem that we face. It isn't, and we know that. But I do believe that we are able to discern from God's word how to navigate even the most modern problems that we encounter. And that statement brings us to what biblical counseling isn't. It's not a quick fix. Sometimes the real solution uh, doesn't actually change our circumstances, but instead it changes us 
and how we handle them. It's not merely a proof text that we slap on a tough situation as a Band-Aid. It's not pat answers to complex issues. And it's not read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. These approaches are simplistic and they lack love and care. And simplistic approaches to people's complex problems is not biblical counseling. But the simple truths that there is a savior that is with them in their struggles and that you will be there with them too, that's what God has designed for us in our suffering. That is biblical counseling. So now that we know what biblical counseling is and what it isn't, how do we become biblical counselors? So in our large group time, I shared the three trees model uh, and our counseling team uses this to walk people through how God changes us. And the terms I use, like heat or thorns, or maybe that incredible illustration by my son, uh, might have been new to you. But hopefully, the principles of looking at the circumstances of your life through a gospel perspective and then begging God to change you and the way you respond to those circumstances is not new to you. Because if you're going to be a biblical counselor, it's crucial to be living a life that is becoming more like Christ. If you aren't actively engaging in the lifelong process of having God reveal your sinfulness to you and then depending on him to change you and make you more like him, you won't be able to effectively help point others in that direction. When we are actively experiencing the living water of the Holy Spirit changing us and making us more like Jesus, only then can we minister to others from a flowing river of fresh waters of gospel-induced change in our own lives. But if we haven't seen God changing us in the last week or month or year, maybe more, we'll be trying to minister to others from stagnant waters. And stagnant water is not healthy. Stagnant water causes damage. Actively living a lifestyle of biblical repentance is a prerequisite for a biblical counselor. And I just want to pause and say, the notes are in the app. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with blanks, like that I love to hate them. So you'll see my whole outline is in there. You don't have to do any blanks. There's like a little box in the notes. You can just add some more stuff. But Okay, you as a leader, if you're going to do this, if you're going to live a lifestyle of biblical repentance, what does that look like practically for you? Okay. When you're in prayer time in group, it looks like you leading the way, confessing your sin, and asking your group members to join you in praying for God to change your sinful desires. Or it looks like when you hear a sermon that contained no new information for you, but was full of gospel principles that we all need to get better at, you talk about that in group. Where are you falling short and where are you challenged to grow? It looks like when your spouse or a close friend lovingly, or maybe not so lovingly, points out something that you've done, you listen humbly and you explore if they might just be onto something. Now, does that sound like you? If so, great. Praise God. Keep that up. It's a daily battle to stay humble and growing in Christ. And if it's not, it's a great opportunity to start on the road to a lifestyle of repentance. Ask God to forgive you and then ask him to change you and then keep doing that every time you fall short. Biblical counseling starts with effective self-counseling. 
living out that model daily in humility. And most of the rest of what we talk about tonight is going to come from a book called Side by Side by Ed Welch. That's where the title came from. Max, I knew you were on to that. Um, it's all about walking with others in wisdom and in love. And I won't do that book justice in the rest of our time together tonight. So if what you hear tonight is even remotely interesting, I'd encourage you to read that on your own and get the fully fleshed out version. And you may even decide after reading it that you want to work through it with your whole entire group uh, and then discuss it so you can all grow in living out the ABCs of group life more effectively. If you are living that right lifestyle of repentance, the foundation of this book, it won't be a struggle for you to embrace It's the truth that we are all needy, every one of us. I'm needy, which I realize is not hard to believe. (laughs) You're needy, which may or may not be hard for you to believe. Even Drew is needy. In fact, your favorite preacher from thousands of miles away, he also is needy. We're all needy. And why is that foundation so crucial to our understanding of how to walk side by side effectively with others? Because if you forget that you're needy, you'll be tempted to start to think that you are better than the people you encounter that are struggling to grow in Christ. You'll start to forget that it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The growth in Christ that each of us has experienced, it didn't come from us. It was God who made us grow. But if we lose sight of the fact that we are all needy, we'll become arrogant and prideful and impatient with those that God is growing more like him at a different pace or at a different time than he chose to grow us. And that will make it impossible for us to live out this challenge from Paul. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with people that you enjoy being with that are also working hard to grow in Christ. Oh, uh, wait, that's not what it says. Oh, it says everyone. We're supposed to be patient with everyone. And so we might be really good at warning the idle and disruptive group members in our life, even if we aren't living that lifestyle of repentance. But without it, we'll struggle to encourage the disheartened or help the weak. And we have no shot at being patient with everyone. So we are all needy. We have sinful hearts and life is hard. We experience heat in many different forms, and on our own, we will respond sinfully to the struggles we face. So, like I talked about in that model, we need to ask the Lord for help. Help to remember his promises and allow it to change how we act and react to our circumstances. When we ask the Lord for help, he moves towards us. When we needed rescue, Christ came to earth for us. Not because we deserved it, we were his enemies. But he moved towards us then, And he moves towards us now. And in that model, we talked about bearing good fruit once we experience the living water that only God provides. And besides the fruit of the Spirit that we just finished studying, another one of the specific ways that we can bear good fruit in our circumstances is to ask for help from others. God never meant for us to walk the Christian life alone. We can lead the way with transparency and vulnerability by asking others to help us in our goal to grow in Christ. But how do we do that? Uh, We want to ask for prayer, both for our circumstances and the matters of the heart that sit just below the surface. Not just our heat or our thorns, but our sinful hearts and the hearts of those involved. So, 
First, we put our burden into words. We're all pretty good at that. But then, second, we attach words of scripture that capture both our real needs and God's purposes and promises. And here's an example of how you or I could do that in group. First, the burden. I have been so impatient with my kids recently. I need help. Second, attach scripture. Would you pray that I will know Jesus's unlimited patience toward me so that I will pass that on to my children? That's from 1 Timothy 1.16. Or would you pray that I will see my anger is murder and the problem is that I demand something and I'm not getting what I demand? That's from James 4 verses 1 through 10. Modeling this, attaching scripture, will change your prayer times. God will use it to change you and those in your group. And you might be wondering at this point, I thought this was about how to help other people. I promise you, we're getting there. We aren't just needy, we are all needed as well. This is how God works in his church. We're called to live out the 59 one another commands of the New Testament. We are needed by those around us. And just like Christ, when he moved and actively moves towards us in our neediness, we are to reflect Christ and move towards others in their neediness. And this can be scary. Trust me, as an introvert, I know. But we can't forget Paul's words in Romans 15, 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So when you're feeling anxious about getting involved in a tough situation, remind yourself again that it's not you that does the changing. God does that. But he does want us to be part of the process. It's how he's changing us. Don't miss that. As we engage in biblical counseling, biblically counseling others, God uses it to change us. Ed Welch encourages us by sharing this. When you in your weakness move towards others, you honor God and are more powerful than you know. You are qualified by the Spirit. And moving towards others can lead to being part of really challenging situations. Jason shared one of those. Uh, But often our worst fears of being in over our heads prevents us from moving towards others altogether. We need to start small and trust God for where he leads our conversations. So maybe for you, there's a member or two in your group that you avoid moving towards. You say hi, but really engaging them is the last thing that you want to do each week. Challenge yourself. Engage with that person in your group. And one really practical application of this is on Sunday mornings. We all enjoy seeing our favorite people and getting to connect with them. Um, But challenge yourself to greet one person uh, that you don't know or that you don't know well each week. And if you do that in faith, I'm confident that God will grow you as you move towards others. He may grow your group. He may provide co-leaders for you. He may provide an opportunity to put the things we're talking about tonight into practice. I'm not sure what he'll do, but I'm sure that he'll grow you. And so once you take the step of moving towards others, you have thoughtful conversations. Don't just settle for small talk, but try to dive a little deeper. A good way to do this is to follow their affections. When you stumble across something in conversation that excites them or, or something that uh, you can tell they value or even something that's hard, press in and ask more questions that get beyond the facts and lead to their feelings. 
And the book does an incredible job of uh, describing how to do this practically. So I'd encourage you again, check that out if thoughtful conversations are tough for you. And this next one can be a challenge for many, especially me. We see it in Paul when, uh, when he tells the Corinthian church, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now, the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians is all about what a mess, total mess that that church was. But Paul shows us that we need to see the good and enjoy one another. I naturally see the bad. My, my first 10 years working here, a large portion of my job was to catch mistakes before they hit the screens. And I was pretty good at it. But I let that role get out of control in my heart. As soon as it wasn't just typos or rough transitions uh, that I was focusing on, I started, started spotting everything I didn't like and I fixated on it. And I insisted that it needed to change, whether that was things in me, things in my family, my friends, perfect strangers. I got really good at seeing the bad. There's a lot to see, but seeing the good, now that's tougher, but it is there. You'll likely need help from the Lord and he will provide it if you ask him. The spirit is working in all of us. When we see the spirit at work, we need to point it out. When you can help others see that God is actively working in them and help them to learn to do it on their own, you make a huge difference in their lives. They start to realize that they're not alone after all, that God is with them and is working in and through them and their faith is strengthened. Well, when those thoughtful conversations lead to hearing about suffering as they often do, we need to have compassion during trouble. Compassion grieves with those that grieve. It remembers, it speaks, it acts. Sometimes it can be hard to know what to say, but know this, silence communicates indifference. And that's most likely not what you're feeling. So fight the urge to be silent so you aren't misunderstood. Say something, do something. Remember, that's the basic idea. So here are a couple of helpful things you can say. Say, I'm so sorry. This is so hard and painful. I'm with you in this. They're short, simple, but they communicate empathy and presence. People aren't looking for you to fix their problems. They typically know that you can't. They just don't want to be alone as they navigate it. So here are a few things not to say. Okay, this is a, let me know if you've heard this before in your suffering. It could always be worse. Coming alongside someone in compassion isn't about comparing or contrasting hurts, but being present. And when the time is right, finding common hope in Christ. How about these next two? What is God teaching you through this? Or God will work this together for your good. And before you throw things at me, because those things you say, those things are biblical. And you're right, they are very biblical. But rarely are they said in the right timing. And they usually end up hurting those that are suffering. Just be with them and let God work in them and wait for them to share what they're learning or for, for uh, how God is working. This last one is my favorite. So this one is just to convict me. If you need anything, let me know. They won't. They won't let you know. So take the initiative to do something that would be helpful. And if you can't think of anything because maybe you don't know them enough, ask someone closer to them what would be helpful and then do that. So we have compassion during trouble, but we don't stop there. We also need to pray during trouble. Pray for them. Pray 
with them right then and there. Or if you're not sure what to pray for, ask them how to pray for them and then do it. This is the best way to offer help to others. So we pray for what is on their heart. What did they tell you? Pray for that. But like we talked about before, be sure to connect scripture and matters of the heart to their request. And I I encouraged you earlier to model this in your prayer requests in group. But many times in group, people don't ask for prayers like that, right? I mean, instead of, I've been so impatient with my kids recently, I need help, followed by that request to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Instead, you get something like this. Pray that I don't kill my kids this week because they're driving me nuts. Okay, I may have given that request a few times in group. But you can provide prayer that connects Scripture and hard issues at work to the slightly less than biblically mature request for prayer. So here's some things you can pray for. And again, they're in that outline. Pray for healing. Pray for comfort. Pray for wisdom, unity, encouragement, love and discernment, for perseverance, for faith that lasts, for the fruit of the Spirit. And also in your daily reading, as you come across prayers that apply to a struggle that you're walking alongside someone else with, send those prayers to them and then pray them for those for them. The more you let scripture teach you to pray, the more it will come to you in the moment. And even better, when you see a prayer that applies to one of your struggles, (laughs) send that to your group members and ask them to pray that prayer for you. Don't forget to follow up. The next time you see them, ask for updates or text them if it's a time-sensitive request. Follow-up is the evidence that you actually care and they're not just a checklist item in your life. Prayer changes things. Sometimes it changes our circumstances, but God consistently uses prayer in our lives to see our hearts change to be more like Christ. So most of what we just covered has to do with responding to the suffering around us. But often in counseling situations, we're not just dealing with suffering. We're also dealing with sin. And so I want to spend some time looking at ways to effectively engage with the sin that surrounds us. And I will start with 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. It tells us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So we need to be alert to Satan's devices. We're all born with a sin nature and left to our own devices, we will choose sin. But our enemy provokes us, tempts us, and wants to destroy us. And we see his main strategy in the Garden of Eden as he gets Eve to doubt what God has said and done. Satan tries to get her to do what seems to make more sense to her instead. And Ed Welch points out in his book that he promises freedom, he delivers slavery. When Satan sees weakness, he attacks. When we're in the midst of trouble, we need to rally around each other and fight for each other's hearts. Remembering what happened in the Garden of Eden, it will help us to be alert to how a sufferer is being tempted or accused by Satan. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, he did what no one else had done in response to the enemy's strategy. He trusted in the word of God and he dismissed the lies of Satan, even when it meant more suffering and even death. Jesus showed us that our primary means for doing battle are scripture and prayer. As we fight Satan's attacks in our own lives and in the lives of others, 
we will need to prepare to talk about sin. Talking about sin is hard and it's very uncomfortable. And honestly, it occurs way more rarely than it should. How can we learn to be skillful in lovingly confronting others in our lives with the sin that entangles them? I think it starts with the realization that avoiding it is just about the least loving thing that we can do. Welsh says it this way, when we put sin off limits, we cannot defend ourselves as being polite people who merely avoid meddling. Rather, we are Pharisees who during a leisurely walk avoid eye contact with the dying person we almost trip over. We are neglecting matters of life and death. Ouch, that is convicting. So how do we do this well? I think Matthew uh, 7 verses 3 to 5 shows us how to begin. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to start by examining ourselves first. And this goes back to our foundational lifestyle of repentance. If we're actively participating in God making us more like him, talking with others about their sin won't seem like an attack from an arrogant person that seems to have it all together. It will be a caring conversation with a loving friend that's constantly talking about their own sin. Next, I want to challenge us to see the good again. Uh, Before you talk about the sin you see in someone's life with them, Be sure to have laid the foundation about the good things that you see God doing in them first. If you've never encouraged someone in their growth in Christ, you are not ready to challenge them to more growth in Christ. Ephesians 4.29 makes it clear. Our goal is to build others up. And that means both with encouragement of what we've seen God do and encouragement to engage with seeing him do more by confronting sin lovingly and respectfully. Another thing that needs to be done before we're ready to talk about sin with someone is that we need to acknowledge the hard. When someone we love is acting sinfully, often a gently asked question like, how are you doing? Or is everything okay? Will help them to share the circumstances that are provoking the behavior that you're seeing. And when they trust you enough to share those hard things, empathize with them. We don't need to excuse sin, but we can acknowledge the fact that the circumstances of life are challenging. And if we act like we've never struggled in that way, or as if living a sin-free life is easy, we likely won't get to experience people responding in humility when we talk about their sin. When we do address their sin, we need to realize that it requires humility and patience. Humility means we already see our sins as worse than others. So we have no need to defend ourselves when someone points out our sin. And patience is interested in what direction people face. Do they face towards Jesus? Patience is more interested in direction and less interested in how fast people are growing. We find the last important principle for addressing sin in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We need to take on the sin of others one at a time. We don't have to talk about every sin we witness or suspect. God does this with us and we need to do this with others. 
Can you imagine if at the point of conversion, God unveiled all of our sinfulness to us? Like, talk about discouraging. So take it slow and don't overwhelm people. But once you've addressed someone's sin wisely and they seem open to change, how do you help fellow sinners? Now, in some cases, you don't have to bring sin up to them because they're bringing it up to you. Um, In either case, that opportunity is a great one to see the good because the humility it takes to confess our sin or to respond well when we're confronted with it is an act of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own, so don't miss the chance to share with them that God is already at work in them. Then resist the urge to simply commiserate with them. Don't match sin for sin or just leave it at, that's okay, I struggle with that too. Keep the focus on the issues at hand. Ask things like, what can we do to fight this? Offer partnership, humility, and patience, but not commiseration. And then get to the heart issues at hand. Again, back to that three trees model. What's going on below the surface of the behavior that's provoking that sin? Where are they turning away from who God is and all he has promised us and instead embracing the lies of our enemy? Once you understand the whys behind the sin, work with them to develop a plan. You can start with confession and repentance with God and with others that they've sinned against. And then share gospel-centered resources with them to work through, or even better, work through one with them. Help them find specific actions that will display their trust and faith in who God is and what he has promised us. And again, just like with prayer for others, be sure to follow up. And this is where you'll get really specific with the area they're struggling with. Depression, anger, lust, pride, grief, abuse, the list goes on and on. But there are great gospel resources that will point both of you to applicable scripture for each specific situation. Then get help if you need it. Start with others in your group that have a heart for biblical counseling. Then reach out to your coach or your campus pastor or me. We are all needy. And we all get in over our heads. We are constantly faced with need-to-know, need-to-grow moments when we come across things we don't have any experience with. But here's what you need to know. Your existing relational connection with that sinner or sufferer has put you in the best position to walk alongside them. We want to walk alongside you as you do it if you need us to. Anytime we're walking alongside someone, we need to recognize the messy nature of growth and change. And so if by God's grace, the change he has brought you through has been fast and easy, wow, I'm amazed. And you need to tell me more about that sometime. But the rest of us, however, seem to grow slowly and have lots of setbacks along the way. Our sanctification is a lifelong process. We need to be patient with others in their process. And we can all get discouraged as we're waiting for change in us or in other people. But we need to remember that asking the Lord for help is change. The struggle itself is the evidence of God's work. You see, spiritual growth and power feel exactly like weakness. And we don't like to feel weak. But we need to cling to what we learned from Paul's experience with weakness. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And lastly, we need to keep the story in view. God's writing a story of redemption for his people. And by God's grace, we get to be a part of that. 
He has written us into his redemptive storyline and he has allowed us to be part of the story that he's writing in others' lives. We all have a past, a present, and a future. And for those of us that have embraced the gospel, we have a sinful past apart from Christ. We're presently growing more like him each day and we await a future with him in eternity for heaven. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it tells us in particularly rich fashion the redemptive story that's true of every follower of Christ. Read that passage this week. This story needs to inform the way that we deal with the circumstances of our lives and the lives of those that God is calling us to come alongside of. Okay, I know that was a lot. I threw a lot at you. I'm going to try to sum it all up and give a simplified framework to follow when walking alongside others. First, pray before, during, and after connections with this person. Secondly, keep confidentiality. I know we haven't talked about this yet, so technically it's not summing something up, but don't share with anyone who isn't part of the problem or part of the solution. And when you share with those people, make sure it's not a surprise to the person that you're working through. Let them know ahead of time that you're gonna be doing that. The church has a tragic record on this, in this area. So resist the temptation to gossip. Don't let it ruin your ministry because if you do it, it will ruin your ministry. Next, listen well. Point out the Spirit's work when you see it and help them to learn to do it on their own. Apply scripture. This can happen in preparation before you connect with them each week as you're praying and asking God what you need to cover with them or it can happen on the spot as the Spirit gives you passages or themes that come to your mind. Next, gently confront sin and get to the heart issues at play. Pray with them and ask them to pray in your time. So sometimes in group, there's so many people, they don't feel comfortable praying. Challenge people to pray, and especially in a one-on-one situation, there's no better place to do it. And then lastly, encourage and assign next steps. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes left, maybe five minutes left. Um, For any questions you have, you can ask them. I'll do my best to answer them. And when I can't, then I'll call on one of you and you'll get to do it. All right. So what questions do you guys have? Going once. Twice. Sold. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your night. I saw on the way out there was some extra food. So if you go back into the lobby, you might be able to score another sandwich or salad. Um, But thanks again for being here and thanks for leading. We appreciate you guys.